for indigenous knowledge, indigenous ways of thinking, you have to go to the land. Mm. It's the land that's the source of indigenous knowledge. Don't listen to me. You need to listen. I can take you, though. I know who some of these people are. And I can take you there, bring a gift, you know, and spend some time with them. I think we should be sending our brightest students to do clerkships with indigenous medicine people, say a Manitoulin Island, where they can go and spend two years, learn the language, learn the traditions, talk about law, still work with various communities and their issues and how they have to deal with the common law. Because it's these, these people would then, they would be uh, evolving, they would be growing up on indigenous ways of thinking about the world that where they've gone to the source of this knowledge. Hello, Plastic Pills listeners. This is Victor Brazoni, joined by Matt McManus. Um, Today, we're joined by Dale Turner. Dale Turner is an associate professor of political science at the University of Toronto. Previously, he was an associate professor of politics and Native American studies at Dartmouth College. His work focuses on indigenous politics, contemporary indigenous intellectual culture, contemporary political theory, and the philosophy of Ludwig Wittgenstein. His 2006 book, This Is Not a Peace Pipe, Towards a Critical Indigenous Philosophy, argues for the need to have academically trained indigenous philosophers act as word warriors or as a bridge between Western and indigenous ways of thinking, something he argues is important for indigenous issues and uh, justice. This emphasis on language and translation informs much of Professor Turner's recent work, Today, Matt and I had the pleasure of reading Professor Turner's work in progress on the politics of Indigenous translation, listening to Indigenous peoples in and on their own terms, set to appear in the Rutledge Handbook of Critical Indigenous Studies. In the paper, Turner argues for the usefulness of of the Wittgensteinian approach to language analysis to assist with the translation of indigenous ways of thinking and Western ways of thinking. For example, he argues that to understand indigenous spirituality, Wittgenstein's concept of language games and family resemblances can be a useful tool, both for Western institutions, but also for indigenous people themselves to translate their concepts in a way that minimizes misunderstanding and conflict. Dale Turner, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so grateful for the invitation and uh, glad to finally be here. Yeah, for sure. We tried a couple times, obviously, and finally we got a time to work out. Um, So maybe we could start with, you know, how did you come to Wittgenstein um, as being a central figure for you to deal with these kinds of questions? Yeah, that's a good that's a a good question. Um, I might. So I start I started off. Um, as an engineer, and um, I was in the Navy and didn't handle the seas too well. Um, hmm. But what got me into philosophy was uh, our court case, our, my community. So my father's uh, Temi Agavanishinaabe from Tomogamy, Ontario, uh, in nor- northern Ontario. And uh, our community had a, a case that went to the Supreme Court of Canada, ultimately in the Bear Island decision, which is uh, a bit of a, I think it's a disastrous uh, decision, more so at the Superior Court of, of Ontario. Um, but basically what we tried to do was to argue that we had not, 
we had not signed the the Robinson Huron Treaty of 1850, and one of the things that we had to show was um, we had to go into a court and show that we had sort of a, a indigenous connection to the land. In other words, we had to go into a court and prove that we were indigenous. Um, we provided uh, an explanation for that. We we brought in our medicine people. We brought in anthropologists and so on. And but the court basically basically said that we didn't really uh, constitute indigenous peoples. That we uh, that we basically too many of us spoke English. We were Christians. Mm. Um, and uh, so that got me interested in, uh, because I actually thought the argument was pretty simple, right? We mm. had 13 traditional families that had been there for a long time. We in particular, we have a dodem system that was in place. We had a way of connecting uh, people and our language and land. It was a kind of, a, I mean, I was not raised as a traditionalist, but these values were kind of deeply embedded in my upbringing in the way that I certainly understood my place uh, on the lake, on the homelands called the Dakimanam. Hmm. So I got interested in in that, and my cousin at the, at the Sandra Laronde gave me uh, I think she probably gave it to me because it was the shortest philosophy book, which was the second discourse mm -hmm. on the rights of inequality. I think it's like 40 pages or something. And she probably thought I could handle it. Uh, <laughs> With a Rousseau? Uh, Rousseau, yeah. yeah. Um, and and it's, it's interesting to, I think, for someone, I think, I think what I realized was that I kind of was more of a philosopher type uh, mm. of thinker, even as an engineer. Um, but... I got really interested in this book because it very clearly puts indigenous peoples in the state of nature, well, close, depending on how you read or so, but close to the state of nature. But it's measured right against uh, against the Western European cultures as civil societies. So I found that really interesting because this this logic was was part of. I, it seemed to flow out of the 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 rational, rationale in the Supreme Court decision, right? That, that we're being judged from, by, from the outside, from a Western European perspective, not from within the way we understood ourselves. So right from the beginning, my question, and it's only now I've really come back to, to embrace this more, I think, in a philosophical context, which is how do, we, how do we listen and understand to indigenous peoples in and on their own terms? And I think that I got interested, and that, that was a kind of driving question for me to study philosophy, to, and I decided to, to do an under, uh, undergrad in philosophy, and then I was, uh, there's a, an interesting story about how I ended up at McGill. Uh, but I do have, if I have time, I have a short little story about Wittgenstein, because, sure. so in the Navy, I was at... Um, I remember doing some studies at the uh, Technical University of Nova Scotia, TUNS, it's called. Mm -hmm. And I used to hang around in the stacks, in the, you know, the bees, right, in, mm -hmm. in the library. And I would pull books off and I would read them and didn't really understand. Some of them caught my eye, but I picked off, uh, I picked out a book and uh, I took it out of the library because it was so interesting. And 
but I tried to read it. I, I think I got four pages into it, couldn't do it, took it back. You know, but there was something that appealed to me years later when I went back to study philosophy. I was in a third year seminar uh, with uh, Sheila Mason and at Concordia, who's an awesome professor. And I realized that the investigations, which is what we were reading, was that book that I took off the shelf. <laughs> so there's in some way it, it was appealed to me intuitively. Uh, and of course, you know, it's it's a it's a, one of the weirdest texts uh, to read. If you 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 really can't read a prima facie, right? You just can't no. pick it up, and you know, uh, I, I tried reading it to my kids to go to sleep, and uh, <laughs> actually, it actually, that worked quite well. Now that I think about it, but anyway, uh, so the, the, there was this connection with language and 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 trying to listen and understand. Uh, what I do, what I don't think I appreciated at least initially, um, and really it's not until I I kind of read fr uh, his remarks on Fraser's Golden Mouth was how to how can we understand or appreciate maybe that's the better word that people think about the world in a fundamentally different way. Mm. Put, everything's put on all life forms life, life worlds are put on in conversation with each other that. The differences are 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 so deep that to unpack them is not going to come out in in a template or an argument, and I think that's what led me to Wittgenstein. But I think having the right professors exposed me to that, in in somebody like Sheila Mason, um, uh, it was was really key uh, for that. Great, that's a, that's a that's a super interesting story. Um, yeah, I like how you just thought you happened to pick up that book as if, and then it ended up being the... It was meant to be. It was meant to be. It was meant to be. Yeah. Um, and actually that... that... Yeah, I was just going to say when I was interviewed at um, McGill, um, Charles Taylor sitting next to me came in, you know, with his t-shirt. That's got to be intimidating. <laughs> yeah, so he's sitting out with his eyebrows for um, <laughs> one, one just wonderful, um, wonderful man. And, t and Tully. And uh, we sat down and they were talking and they said... Oh, uh, it says here you you've uh, studied engineering and and you're interested in Wittgenstein and uh, Taylor leans over to me and he says oh, we expect the same quality of results. <laughs> uh, yeah, because Wittgenstein he started off as an engineer, is that right? He did, yeah. I mean, he has he had a patent on a jet engine. Oh right. He, JPL is based on on his design of a of a jet engine. Really? Did yeah. you know that? Yeah. I remember uh, Bertrand Russell said that, and he was surprised when this young man came in uh, to Cambridge, right? Because he had just an undergraduate degree in philosophy, and he would always show up at his office uh, and just start badgering him with questions. And apparently, at first, Russell was kind of like the way you would be. You know, you want to be a bit encouraging, but, you know, at the same time, it's like, you know, you know who I am, right? I got a lot of things to do. And then gradually, he realized, like, oh, this guy's a genius. <laughs> in fact, you know, uh, he's actually making me question everything uh, I know of about philosophy. And then apparently, I think it was like two years later, he was like, Wittgenstein convinced me there was just no point in anything that I was doing, right? You know? <laughs> and it's, I was thinking, I always thought to myself, like, that's got to be pretty humbling if you're a world-famous philosopher like Russell and an undergraduate just convinces you that your entire career path is, you know, bunk. Right. Well, I mean, there's there's uh, Michael Ignatieff uh, tells this story about 
uh, Wittgenstein showing up at the, I don't know which one it was, the Moral Sciences Club in Cambridge, you know, showing up for Isaiah Berlin, who was giving a talk on, and the, I think the topic was, are there moral propositions? Uh, the way Ignatieff tells the story, though, is kind of like that Wittgenstein comes in, listens, you know, with his entourage behind him, sits down, listens to him. And then, the, and then of course, his hand goes up and within like, you know, 15 minutes, totally destroys uh, Berlin's <laughs> argument to the point where Berlin turns to political philosophy after that. Never <laughs> writes another philosophy. You know, it's just, That's you, funny. You, you got to love these these uh, old stories that. Wittgenstein is just like the perfect philosopher for those. Yeah, I, I did think he, I did think he thought said something funny though, which was because um, I, I always thought this was true when I read him that he was by far his worst critic. You know what I mean? Every time you read his book, you can just see in the back of his mind he's like, yeah, not good enough. Yeah, gotta check it out. So let me um, also kind of give the listeners a sort of bird's eye, because it's actually the first time we've talked about Wittgenstein on the podcast. We've talked about a lot of other philosophers and theorists, and I think. Um, it's worth sort of mentioning, and you lay it out quite nicely in your paper, um, the sort of two stages of Wittgenstein, right? So he starts off as kind of trying to understand language in its logical form, right? And he, he has that famous quote, um, which is, you know, where of one cannot, um, what was it? I'm trying to actually find it. Do you, do you remember it offhand? Where of one uh, cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. Be silent. Exactly. Exactly right. So it's like... But then I think he becomes uh, that. So that was the Tractatus uh, Logico Philosophicus, and then um, later on, uh, what was collected as the Philosophical Investigations, written in a very in a quite different style, right, in the form of aphorisms. Um, he kind of does this whimsical engagement where he's having a dialogue, and I think in your paper too, you describe it as he's having a sort of dialogue with himself, right, a back and forth questioning. And I think underlying the, the, the discussion he has with himself is he sort of realizes that trying to understand language um, as like sort of a logical structure doesn't make sense because there's and, and, the, and the key concept, I think, is forms of life. Um, and there, of course, there's much more to that. But I don't know. I wonder if you could talk about that, that sort of that transition from lot from his trying to encompass everything logically to this more uh, sort of like embodied lived form of language. I just wanted to make one interjection, though, and say, uh, just as a matter of hope to all the aspiring, including ourselves, uh, I remember reading uh, an edition of the Philosophical Investigations where Wittgenstein, that included a preface Wittgenstein had written for it, and he said something to the effect of, all I tried to do was write a good book, and I haven't even achieved that. So basically apologizes to whoever's reading this. so, you know, to anyone who ever th- sits there thinking that, uh, you know, they're a little insecure about their work and this is a problem, just remember that one of the towering figures of European philosophy in the 20th century uh, was also, as you put it, uh, Professor Turner, his own worst critic, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's true. In fact, well, and, and in fact, he didn't publish it, did he? Somebody, no. they, they, it was published for him after he died. Uh, but I do think the first part, now they call it sort of the first part, I think it's the first 633, uh, you know, um, aphorisms, as you call them, or remarks. Uh, I think he had those in place. That's why a lot of purists will read that part of the investigations because it's what he had settled in his mind. Um, one of the things he used to do was he would write them, write uh, these 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 uh, remarks and little cards and he would arrange them on the floor and he would you know he was never he was never happy with the way that I think um, he he would certainly make transitions from one 
topic to another, always rearranging uh, his his work. But I, I think there is something to maybe it's the youth uh, or the arrogance of youth, you know, that and you're 22 or you're young and you're, you know, because uh, I, I actually think he's used to go around. And of course, he, of course, he wrote the Tractatus while he was a prisoner of war in, <laughs> right. in Italy. And and uh, that's got to help you get, make a deadline. Um, <laughs> is, is he, yeah, no kidding, eh? <laughs> he uh a bit of a fatalist too i think he in fact i think he got uh, uh meddled you know for bravery because he just thought if i'm gonna go i'm gonna go you know kind of thing so he went for it but um i think the the idea that he had solved right the the major problems of philosophy which is what we can say we can say clearly and what everything else we have to pass over is nonsense right and, right is a kind of a very nuanced view of, of what nonsense is. Of course, the Vienna Circle picked that, you know, up with the principle of verification to take it in their own direction. But I think there's still this kind of element of mysticism, right, in the Tractatus of, of um, what later becomes, I think, uh, not knowing how you apply the rule, right? When mm. in, in the application of the rule itself, how do we know to move on sort of thing when we grasp a rule? Uh, that's why I think rule following is so, so difficult uh, in, in the investigation. So I think there's more recent, more recent scholarship, and I'm not a Wittgensteinian scholar by any means, mm -hmm. but I think there is a lot more unity between the earlier and later periods. And I think part of that is, uh, hit the willingness that he had as a younger man to kind of say this is the answer. And I think what he's done in the investigations is he's given up that. Uh, um, he, he's he, it, Well, it's a difficult thing, right, uh, to pull out of Wittgenstein that um, when you talked about the, the preface, you know, I wish I'd written a, I wish I'd written a good book, but it hasn't happened. Oh, well, here it is anyway. But I think the other part that comes with this is, I, I, I give you my thoughts, these, you know, in whatever lame form they're in, but I hope they make you think for yourself. And I think there's really something to that in the, in the later work, which is he is somebody who has put the effort in to think through some very difficult problems that I think most philosophers would realize are difficult problems. They may not be happy with the way he's done because let's face it, a lot of uh, certainly in the analytic or positivist tradition, they're going to say he gave up, right? He just he basically gave up and said, "Look, there really is no answer. There are the infinite number of language games, and the the meaning is use. So the use depends on your practices that you engage in, and you know. And I just I just don't think that's quite right about Wittgenstein. Um, uh, so, uh, but I do think. Uh, what ultimately the shift is in the earlier work to the later work is how our attitudes, our attitudes about thinking and our attitudes about how we recognize others and what other people say and how they use their language becomes central to his philosophy. It's a form, well, I guess what we would call pragmatism pragmatic view. Ordinary language was certainly what, uh, you know, some philosophers took over 
um, from his work. I don't think he would ca categorize his work that way, but I do think there's something about um, that what he's trying to do with language is show us something. And that showing is ex an exceedingly difficult thing to do. It's a form of aesthetic or poetry, but at the same time, it's concerned with arguments and, you know, and so, uh, you know, trying to bridge, I'm glad he's put that work in. Um, I figured he took 16 years of, you know, um, driving himself insane, uh, practically, you know, of pacing behind Bertrand Russell and one in the morning and, you know, Bertrand Russell saying, are, are you thinking about logic or your sins, Ludwig? <laughs> what was his answer? answer? Both. <laughs> yeah. well, th that actually brings me to, um, well, I, I want to say my own interpretation of this very quickly. And then actually I had a follow-up question for you that kind of brings us back to indigenous politics uh, and the relation of some of this to that. Uh, so my own kind of take on this uh, is that both of these books, because uh, I agree with you 100% that there's a strong unity between them. Uh, in fact, I say almost an overwhelming unity because the personality of the man is just so forceful, right? Uh, it's that he's trying to cure us of our desire to engage in the traditional project of European philosophy, right? Uh, namely, this quest for certainty. I think that what really shifts between the two books is how he goes about it. Because the first book, I think, uh, as you put it, very poetically says in the introduction that, look, this is just like a ladder, right? Uh, once you use it, you can throw it away uh, and you have no more need for it any longer. Because the Tractatus kind of shows you that once you say what can be said with certainty, it doesn't amount to very much that's of interest, right? Uh, you can now describe the world as a set of atomic facts, uh, sorry, propositions about atomic facts, uh, but you know nothing about aesthetics and morality and spirituality, which is all the stuff that we really want, right? And then I think, like you said, you know, in the philosophical investigations, he says, even this quest for certainty uh, about things like uh, atomic facts is just pointless, right? You know, language is too complicated. No need to do this. So we still reach the same conclusion that this quest for certainty is misguided. Uh, but we can't even have certainty about the kind of things I thought we could before. So that, that's just my take on it. No, that's, and, I think that seems exactly right. Yeah. But uh, like my interest in indigenous politics relates back to, or sorry, not my interest in, my interest in your take on indigenous politics uh, is this kind of Tully-esque question. Because uh, I think it's really interesting that you said you read Rousseau first uh, and this provoked you. Because one of the things that uh, some people like about Rousseau is precisely that he's in uh, the second discourse on inequality, slightly critical uh, of modernity and European civilization, and almost seems to fetishize uh, some kind of uh, primitivism, right? Uh, as he sees it, right? You know, the state of nature, we were happy, we had genuine community. Noble, uh, noble savage. Exactly, noble yeah, savage, this right. myth of the noble savage that emerges, right? Um, and then, you know, on the other hand, you have people that, like what Tully criticizes a lot, uh, somebody like John Locke, right, who will say, all the world is America, the people there aren't really using the land very well, uh, so we have no reason that we shouldn't go in and take the land from them and put it to good use. It's an extremely xenophobic view. Uh, but scholars are very critical of both of these perspectives, I think justifiably now, one, right, you know, on the one hand to kind of fetishize uh, the so-called noble savage, and on the other hand to just denigrate their cultural accomplishments because it doesn't coincide with our vision, precisely because it does kind of map the logic that you're talking about uh, very clearly in both instances, right? We only see this person from our perspective, right? What it means to us. And I'm just wondering how you think Wittgensteinian philosophy can help us as a tool, you know, uh, to kind of overcome this othering process uh, politically. And I say that also because not a lot of people think of Wittgenstein and think, oh, politics immediately. Certainly I didn't, right? 
I think what uh, I like about uh, a Wittgensteinian approach is when you encounter otherness, your immediate response and reaction to it is um, is in a sense as uh, is, is a form of openness, right? And um, and that openness it has to do, <coughs> excuse me, that openness has to do with with your attitude about your everyday sort of the way that you are more willing to listen to people. You know who these people are, right? They're you know elder type of people who uh, are uh, whose disposition is one of of listening, right? And. They uh, so, and I think Wittgenstein's approach to language creates the, a, a good way <clears throat> to understand language, and to understand that others also use language in a different way. And you may use the same terms, but you're going to come at things from different perspectives by necessity, which which means that at the end of the day, it's uh, and I really like this about Wittgenstein is at the end of the day, it's what we shouldn't be looking for is the fact that we can all understand each other. That's the goal. But what's more interesting about that is we can, at the end of the day is most of us can understand each other, but there's always going to be someone who doesn't. And they're participating in the conversation in the same spirit that we are. And in other words, there's always this, there's always this, need for future dialogue, to revisit our language, to revisit the context and how we use our language. And I think that's, uh, that's the lesson that I get from a Wittgensteinian um, approach. So if you set aside the fact that you're, you, you're not doing this because you want to understand the rules or grammar, um, but the fact that grammar and rules exist, it's, it's, it's a different I think it's a fundamentally different approach to uh, to meaning, and and then a kind of normative language that comes out of out of meaning. Yeah, I was going to say I've sometimes heard it described as you know an open texture to language, right? We don't settle on a final vocabulary, you know, in this Derridian sense, and say you know this is how we speak about the world and morality and everything properly, and anyone who doesn't, uh, we just don't have to listen to them. You know, they're getting it wrong. Uh, you say, well, you know, kind of one of the nice things about human language is the huge variety of games that people play with their words, right? It's a testament, I think, really to the creativity uh, of the human spirit generally and of particular communities uh, in particular, but uh, especially. Uh, but I, I want to know, uh, can you give us an example uh, of where this kind of theory or this approach, I should say, you know, kind of cashes itself out? Uh, in our approach to poli the politics of difference, uh, just for our listeners who might find this a little bit abstract. What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, on the ground. Um, <clears throat> sure. Two things come to mind. Well, I think the first one is the treaty relationship, the contemporary treaty relationship in Indigenous politics. And where this where this first comes out is in the Royal Commission's um, uh, Royal Commission's on Aboriginal People, sorry, final report. Tully was uh, a big, so I worked at the Royal Commission in, in my, in year between after my year one and year, year two, I took the second year off my PhD to work at the Royal Commission for the two co-directors of research, um, um, 
Marlene Castellano and David Hawks. And so I got to spend a year. I lived in Ottawa and wow, what a great job. My job, actually, I got an office. My job was to, um, to summarize all of the incoming research, which literally was cutting edge. Anyone and anyone who worked on indigenous issues worked for the commission, mm. you know, and to keep track of this research that was coming in and then summarize it for the, the commissioners and for, uh, for the co-directors. So I learned a lot. I would literally come in, put a pile of papers on my desk, put my feet up and read papers. Uh, to this day, I'm still waiting for that kind of lifestyle. Um, but, uh, but one of the things that the commission did, I think, was um, in their approach, in their what we would call vision, was uh, that we needed to renew the relationship. We, needed, we need to renew the legal political relationship in a way that, um, and, and a way that respects the early treaty relationship where in a short period, uh, and it didn't last for a long time, but there was a time sort of around the fur trade, early fur trade, where the, the relationship was such that both sides benefited, right? For example, in early Quebec, the, the Europeans could not go into Quebec, right? They had to meet them at the, at the fur trading, so they weren't allowed. So there was that meeting place, right, where they respected each other, they benefited from a trade relationship and so on. The four principles that came out of that were mutual recognition, reciprocity, and responsibility, and sharing. And these four, what they were called principles, the, the commission called them principles, but they're really kind of practices that were in place in the early historical relationship where they listened to the other side, right? And they would meet in a treaty relationship in, that was dictated by, say, the Haudenosaunee in, in the Chuuro Wampum, which is a, a wampum belt that is used in treaty negotiations. The approach, their approach, was we would meet, we would meet in a circle, we would, we would. There were protocols about for, forest diplomacy, as it's called, about who could speak and what order and so on, and that everybody participated in that kind of um, a process. And then agreements would be reached, but then people would go back to their communities with what had been discussed and they would take it to their own communities, hash them out, they would come back again. And they would say, look, uh, we're okay with this, but not with this. Or, and that process goes on. That's an iterative process. And that's the, it, so it's the nature of that relationship itself that embodies right, this treaty approach. So when we hear something like the dish with one spoon as a kind of wampum belt and a treaty, that's the way the Haudenosaunee understand that, that, the, that this, goes, this has a long history before the arrival of Europeans and, and, and where we would, what, what mattered to us individually as communities, but also for the well-being of the, of the overall relationship needed to be constantly revisited and renewed. And everything was up for negotiation. And, and, and they had, people had the, groups had the freedom to bring that in to the, into the dialogue. So in a contemporary relationship, and when you look at the four, or I would say three, um, I was gonna throw that Anishinaabek nation in there, but when you look at what's going on with the Wet'suwet'en, when you look at what's going on in 1492 Lambeck Lane, 
and you look what's going on with the Mi'kmaq, the indigenous groups are falling, they are digging their heels in to say, what is important here is the relationship that we established hundreds of years ago that the Canadian state is still obligated to recognize. And that's that early treaty relationship, the dish with one spoon. Look, we do it in our, our, our land acknowledgements, right? And maybe that's something else to come back to. In other words, it's research, these kinds of practices have resurfaced in Indigenous politics. But what's happened, though, is the Canadian state is coming into contemporary negotiations. In the case of the Mi'kmaq, and they're referring to peace and friendship treaties that go back to the 18th century, they're bringing in the Fisheries Act, right? Mm. In, in 1492, Lambac Lane, they're bringing in the Indian Act. They're saying, look, the chiefs already signed off on this. The Wet'suwet'en, the hereditary chiefs, yeah, well, you may be the source of moral authority, but the, but the, uh, the political authority lies in the, the, the Indian Act system, Indian bands, which we have imposed on you, and now we're going to use that as the, as the way of gaining the consent of the entire community. So there is this resistance to accepting that these age-old treaties that are even within the uh, common law, right? The Royal Proclamation affirms them, 1867 Constitution affirms them, 1982 Section 35, right? The existing Aboriginal and treaty rights of the Aboriginal peoples are hereby recognized and affirmed. Once again, it recognizes these older treaties and it's supposed to weave them into contemporary law. Now we have Bill C-15, which is the UNDRIP, uh, the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, same thing, recognize Indigenous spiritual relationships as the source right, of their political legitimacy and authenticity. Uh, and then you have Article 46, which says nothing in this Nothing in this declaration can undermine the integrity of the state, right? That's that fallback that the state has. That's why Bill C-15, unless it has some richer accounts of accountability put, built into it, is, is really, as they say, aspirational. So I think where Wittgenstein can come back into this is that we have the language of the common law and the language of contemporary public policy, which uses and interprets the meaning of section 35 in a particular way. And that way, without bringing up, I guess, uh, examples, but that way is premised on two assumptions. One is the primacy of moral individualism, right? That, that what lies at the heart of a liberal view of justice is the individual. The individual as the ultimate placeholder, right? For more of moral value, moral worth. And the second one is this, the, the sacred claim of state sovereignty, right? That nation state sovereignty embodies the highest form of political sovereignty and any other recognition of nationhood, indigenous rights, the inherent right of self-government needs to fall under that, right? So, um, so Wittgenstein, I think, is a way for, for to bring those assumptions up in the course of a dialogue, right? As he says, one of the important things about an ongoing dialogue is that we assemble reminders, 
right? So, and now, but it is, it's indigenous peoples themselves who have become educated in the common law. John Burroughs, right, is a professor, Anishinaabe professor. This guy's brilliant. He under, you know, you're not going to put one past him on, on interpreting section 35. And he understands, right, that sort of colonial grip, right, that this language has. But at the same time, we're trying to find ways of loosening that grip. And we're doing it through the course of our politics, I think, of which our younger people are, one, they're less patient about, you know, these, their, their polemics as they've ramped up their polemics in ways that I think is, um, is, is empowering in some ways. But on the other hand, you have this older, us, did I say us, older folks? <laughs> older for older than me who are saying, whoa, you know, we, we, we have to be, in a sense, we have to be careful about the language, right? Words or deeds, the language that we use in this legal political relationship, because what are we putting at stake in our own ways of thinking? And that's why I think that there's this politics of translation now, post-Dalgamic decision, as you know, that I think has taken a hold of indigenous politics. So the, this treaty relationship then and how it's being uh, interpreted both within sort of a legal political realm, but within indigenous studies and political theory, right? That indigenous politics, for example, is um, becoming a subfield in political science, not at U of T, but it, I think it could, we're headed there. Mm -hmm. you know? um, so that's a way, right, of bringing those voices in in a serious way that, and I think where that overlap is, is in this shared middle ground, if you want to call it that, or normative language around rights, nationhood, uh, this, the word inherent, right, is one that I can't, you know, really, I can't gra grasp that in the shift from certainly English to um, indigenous languages. Did that help? Yeah, I think I think that definitely helped. Um, I was so I mean, you brought up a lot there, and and one of the things I think that's interesting about Wittgenstein is sort of the way the emphasis on forms of life to me it sort of harkens almost like an like an embodied knowledge, like um, because it's not you can't really cognitively I think at least on my interpretation of Wittgenstein, although admittedly the person professor I learned Wittgenstein from was a phenomenologist, so she wanted to play up the kind of embodied aspect of this idea of forms of life. And I think one of the things um, that I think is sort of interesting when we're talking about sort of translating and finding this sort of like middle ground or common ground is I wonder how important do you see like the kind of the place of being in the same space as the people, right? So having somebody from, you know, like the state, the Canadian state or, or for American listeners, you know, um, whatever the U.S. federal government like going, because to me, I think... You know, Wittgenstein, I think you even you have a great quote in your paper where you say he's ta you're, you're quoting Wittgenstein and he's talking about like the truth or falsity of words. And he's like, so you're saying human agreement decides the truth and falsity of words, basically. And then he says he responds to himself because uh, he writes in this dialogue. Right. It is what human beings say that is true and false. And they agree in the language they use. That is not agreement in opinions, but in forms of life, which is kind of like I, I always read it as a kind of seeing how a word is used in a context of our reciprocal social relationship and really have to kind of be there embedded to, to really get it. You know what I mean? It's kind of like when you move to a different country and 
I was kind of talking about this with my girlfriend because she studies ethnography a lot and, and, you know, ethnography is all about going in. And I just wonder how important do you think it is? Like, can this, this translation be properly done without more of that actually going and being in the space to really see what that form of life is to use Wittgenstein's language? Yeah. Oh, that's also a really good, a really good question. I, you know, it's almost like, um, you know, in, in, contemporary indigenous politics, law and politics, that section 35 has run its course, I think. I, I, I don't think indigenous peoples are on board with, or, or I don't think they're hopeful that section 35 as a you know constitution, part of the Canadian constitution is able to reconcile uh, indigenous ways of thinking about the world within the existing, you know, language of the common law, and um, and I think what what indigenous activists and, and and leaders are pushing for is not a particular interpretation of indigenous rights or even nationhood for that matter, but they're making room for indigenous law. Right? Indigenous law itself is a third order of law in Canada. And that is in some ways the source of, the only word I could use is, is authenticity, I suppose. Or, mm. and, and that's an uncomfortable word. However, I think that what that does is in somewhat in a practical way, because indigenous law is, is um, you can go to UVic now and you can do a, a law degree in, in, indig in indigenous law. And so it's starting to find its way and it's certainly part of indigenous studies. So where, so where do I, how do I, how do I think about the sort that? of translation? Yeah, without so, the embodied, or I, if it's possible. I think that embodiment is a term is an is one of the. So so the term that I would use would be, um, in an indigenous way, uh, so would be, an indigenous portal concept. In other words, they're, in, they're bringing in certain terms. Best example of this is actually in, in New Zealand, where uh, Tino Rangatira Tanga is a concept that roughly means chieftainship. It was, you know, it's a fascinating, fascinating, uh, the Watangi, uh, Treaty of Watangi signed in 1840 has an English version and a Maori version. The Maori version was actually Recite, I was recited orally to the chiefs in order to get them to sign. The oral, ver the, the Maori version was written by a missionary and the English version was written, of course, by, from, from the sort of policy people on the, on the British side. So you have this semantic nightmare, booyah base of, uh, you know, different interpretations and understandings. But let me, let me come back to, to where, where am I heading with this? I think, I think the, the, in some ways, um, the, the, it, isn't, it isn't the arguments that we're after. As I said, it's changing people's ways of thinking and ways of, of living that is key. So here's, here's one example of how I think this could work. Um, so, you know, in law, the really, the brightest, the best and the brightest um, when they graduate, apply for these clerkships, right, with judges. 
It's the most prestigious thing you can get as a clerkship with a Supreme Court justice. And I think we should have in our law schools, once we have Indigenous law sort of as part of part of the curriculum, which is happening. Um, but I, I think for Indigenous knowledge, Indigenous ways of thinking, you have to go to the land. Mm. It's the land that's the source of Indigenous knowledge. Don't listen to me. You need to listen. I can take you, though. I know who some of these people are. And I can take you there, bring a gift, you know, and spend some time with them. I think we should be sending our brightest students to do clerkships with Indigenous medicine people, say a Manitoulin Island, where they can go and spend two years, learn the language, learn the traditions, talk about law, still work with various communities and their issues and how they have to deal with the common law. Because it's these, these people would then, they would be uh, evolving, they would be growing up on Indigenous ways of thinking about the world that where they've gone to the source of this knowledge. And I think that that creates within people a kind of existential, what do you want to call it? A sort of existential shift from this phenomenological. Yeah. But it's, I would even call it embodied, new embodied knowledge yeah. or like new intersubjective embodied knowledge or something like that. Yes. And I think there's, so, I think that that, what you do is you, it's the people that you, you want to trust certain people to be able to do, what's right in terms of being able to listen to the other side. And there are these people out there. Jim Tully is one, you know, Melissa Williams is another one. There are these non-Indigenous people. And, and then on the other side as well, there's sort of John Burroughs who, you know, and, but we're not quite, we're not quite there yet because it's individuals who are plucking out here and there. And I think what the kinds of changes need to, filter through to the everyday everydayness of Canadian society. And that's, that's just huge. And I don't know if that's a pipe dream or, uh, you know, it just raises a, a host of other issues of whether or not yeah. it's possible or desirable for that matter. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I was going to, Matt, did you want to ask something? Yeah. Yeah. No, I just want to make a, a comment. And then I had a, a pretty open-ended question uh, to invite dialogue, let's say. Um, so I think that there is definitely a kind of uh, cheesy interpretation of the light Wittgenstein uh, that kind of casts itself out as what we now call ordinary language philosophy uh, that does tend to relegate individual experience to comparative unimportance, right? Uh, you know, and you see this sometimes in Wittgenstein's expressions that, look, philosophers have hitherto always suspected that there's some deep significance to what we say that goes beyond the words that we use uh, and that our job is to figure this out. Uh, and he says, you know, that's not true, right? Everything is open to view uh, because there's nothing more than just the words that we use. Uh, and the implication of that would be, well, there's nothing that you experience that I can't know since all you need to do is explain it to me. And if I understand your words, I get the essence of it, right? Or I get the gist of it as well. And I do think that kind of cheesy Wittgensteinianism, because I don't think that's true of the man himself who is mind-bogglingly deep and second-guessed everything, right? Um, but it certainly is true of kind of ordinary language interpretations of them. So that's, that's kind of my comment. What I was interested in, Ashley... Wait, can I just that, hold you there for one second? Because I think, I, I just want to say, I think that the, the open of view part mm -hmm. is not so much that the language is open to view, but it's that our practices are open to view. So like the way that we're using them is what's open to view. And that's how we can um, come to some shared understanding, which I think fits with what just Professor Turner was saying about, you know, the, the clerkship would be useful because you'd actually get to see what's open to view by being there in a certain way. 
Oh, absolutely. And this is where I was getting at my second And that's comment, the non-cheesy, right? I guess. That's the yeah. non-cheesy I, I, just, I, I know people have held bad versions of everything, but like, I, I'm thinking of like, um, in the 1990s, uh, there was a kind of movement in um, right-wing political theory in Canada to kind of just be exhausted uh, by debates about cultural inclusion, as then as there were now, are now, right? Uh, I'm thinking, thinking of people like Peter Emberley, uh, who I studied under Eric Carlton, uh, when he was kind of reflecting on the efforts to incorporate indigenous peoples into a new constitutional order, just saying, can we not just have an end to all these debates? You know, let's settle it and move on. Uh, and I think what's really nice about the non-cheesy view of Wittgenstein, to invoke uh, Victor, is precisely that he says, look, why do you want to stop the dialogue, right? Dialogue is an ongoing thing. It never ends because there's an infinite number of language games that we have to play. Uh, being embedded in them obviously really helps. Uh, and so you should constantly be recognizing that you're going to have to learn from one another, right? And I think that's kind of uh, both a critique uh, of this conservative ideal for politics, right? That we can solve these problems once and all. But I think it's also a critique in a more uplifting sense because it says, look, why would you want to stop learning from one another? Uh, I mean, learning always is going to have problems associated with it. Uh, but it's also an opportunity for you to grow and become someone who's more cosmopolitan, I like that word, in your outlook uh, than you were before, right? Mm -hmm. Do you think that's true? Oh, sorry. Uh, do you think that's true or uh, no? Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> stop the dialogue. I'm, I'm sorry. Could you eat what you said, please? No. Um, no, I think that's right. And, and sorry, I ramble. Everybody, uh, Victor will tell you that I ramble a lot. <laughs> oh my gosh. You got to hear me going. You should talk to my students. I feel like I'm turning into Grandpa Simpson. That's what I think it is. You know, <laughs> I remember when, you know, um, kind of thing. But um, I do. I mean, and I think I think this is why I've, always, I've, I've been uncomfortable labeling myself as a philosopher. I don't when I when I hear sort of philosophers uh, like I just I just read. Um, well, not all of it, but a lot of it, Simone de Beauvoir as the second sex, which I'd never read before. And I think this, this woman is a genius. Yeah. You know, like, I'm, this is such a brilliant piece of work. And, and then I realized, well, I'm actually, the reason, one reason I think it's brilliant is because I think she's kind of a Neo-Wittgensteinian. Mm -hmm. Really? Right? Where she huh. uses a lot, she goes from example to example to example, brilliant, you know, historical work and so on. And, and and then she just wraps everything up in the last two uh, chapters, right? Which I didn't realize until I actually plowed through to the last two, two chapters. But 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 I guess what I'm saying is that um, the, the, I don't I don't have a kind of theory uh, a theory of translation at work here. I don't have an account of truth mm -hmm. um, because so so much of what I'm trying to do is to get people to um, uh, to get more people involved in talking to each other, first of all, mm -hmm. um, and then what comes of that is what we have to work with, right? So it's it's in nurturing a kind of conversation and the willingness uh, and to find the right people who are willing to see things in a way. And then, and, and then I'm thinking specifically in the context of indigenous peoples, you know, because I think there are their women's issues, right? Uh, mm. It's also applicable for that kind of politics as well, listening to the, to the other side kind of thing. And, 
in the right spirit. But there, the other part of this that uh, I have not sort of talked about um, is is the indigenous side of things. Anishina, I, there are Anishinaabe elders that I know and talk to, and uh, and I'm 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 very uh, and I need to think more about this about. Well, in what way am I bringing their thoughts into a conversation such as the one that we're having? For example, I talk about, I use the word Ranga Tiratanga. One reason for doing that is because it's not, it's not from my own, my own community, right? So Bimadizewin, right, which is, means something like the good life. Now, that's a normative term in Anishinaabek philosophy. I have to be careful when I'm using them, even in English, because I don't feel... I don't, I feel like I'm, uh, I don't know enough about it that I'm violating in some way the voices of the people who I learn from. So the problem, and this is where Wittgenstein in some ways uh, brings in this account of power, uh, is useful for an account of power, because I think power is a kind of language game itself and is, you know, um, is, uh, and he said this once, he says, my father was a businessman. Um, man, was he a businessman? Uh, so, or extremely wealthy man. But he said, but we need to get things done. And I think that's one of the ways that I'm kind of thinking this through. Why, why bother doing this? Is it just because I'm, a, I'm an anti-positivist? You know, <laughs> it, it's, it's because I want to get something done, which is... You crush positivism and then the world will be right. right? <laughs> I have a t-shirt with that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they, they, yeah. But I think, uh, I, I think that there is a kind of commitment to a particular way of understanding something, and that for, take come back to the treaty relationship, because here, here is another a concept that's important to Wittgenstein, which is objects of comparison, and I think that the in the in Wittgensteinian approach to language and understanding and meaning and relate and you know tying together. I think section 122 that I write in the paper is really important, which is about gaining this kind of what he calls perspective, per perspicuous representation, which I realized was changed to surveyable representation mm. in the newer translation. And I was using the older translation. That's how old I am. Um, but, uh, but I think that um, the way that I understand what, I, what I'm trying to get across is that Wittgenstein's use of language that I've encountered, I've learned about, I've heard from other people, I've learned from some amazing people, also has a kind of object of comparison, say, in Haudenosaunee thought, in the, in the two row wampum. The two row wampum is, a, is a, uh, a belt. It's a wampum belt. It has two purple rows, uh, and wampum belts are made of shells, right? And uh, they, so it has a white background, two purple rows and they're held together by three beads in the middle. This is, call it a heuristic device, since I'm going to be reading Rawls in the uh, core group, <laughs> um, that there, this is an indigenous way. It embodies, it's, and I use this word embodiment in, a, in, in an indigenous context brings in this language of spirituality, mm. which we haven't touched upon, not my place, but, but that's where it goes. But the, the two row wampum represents this the simple, you know, uh, metaphor of one row represents the ships of the European, the other row represents the canoes of the indigenous peoples. 
and the white background is the river that they're traveling through together in the same relationship, and they don't steer each other's vessel. Hmm. And the three beads in the middle are peace, respect, and friendship. That's what holds huh. them together. The wampum belt is an offering. It's a gift, right? And I think that's the way indigenous philosophy and storytelling can function. But the words are gifts, right? and you have to be open to receiving them and seeing them. But but you're left with you're you're left alone to figure that out for yourself. And then the elders done their job, kind of thing. And uh, you know, let's eat, kind of thing. And um, so it's always nice to bring elders chocolate. Hmm. That sort of thing, because because um, that's a good way to to share share uh, share a conversation <laughs> or tea. But my point is is that that true world wampum for me, and I read that early, actually shortly after Rousseau, and then when I finally read Wittgenstein in this sort of richer context, they are within their own cultures embrace what I would say family resemblances or clan resemblances in an indigenous way that they're using and understanding language in, in the same way. And that's a fruitful way to have a dialogue. So that's, that's an true. academic context, um, but it has very practical consequences to it. You know, when you're talking about the treaty relationship, so. Right. That, no, I love that answer. Um, and you, you mentioned indigenous spirituality and spirituality, you know, and you, you bring it up in the paper and, one thing is like that word spirituality in English, I feel like just has such baggage with it, right? It's like one of those words that just means so many things and can give some people like, I mean, even myself, I admit it kind of gives me like a, I don't know, like, like a new agey, like just like a, I have like a negative connotation with it. And, and I, and I was kind of, I wanted to ask you, you know, how, like what, what, you know, what's a way of understanding, uh, indigenous spirituality or like, what's the. I don't know, <laughs> like, what, like, yeah, what's, 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 what's like a, a way that, that could alleviate like the, the terrible baggage that that word has in English? Gosh, I don't know, it's good, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I thought you would tell me the answer to that, so I wouldn't have to answer. <laughs> he, I gave a talk once in, um, I was a junior, I think it was first year at Dartmouth, you know, and um, this, uh, these people came over from Belgium and they came, heard, you know, I gave a talk at a conference and they came out and said, oh, you've got to come give a talk in Belgium. So I went to Belgium and then I gave this talk uh, on um, by opening up with Wittgenstein and I could see that they were kind of visibly disappointed, you know, that I wasn't wearing my feathers and, and <laughs> but, but, you know, like they didn't have to import an Indian guy from Vermont to uh, talk about Wittgenstein. They, you know, this, uh, like how Searle I think was a, <laughs> at this school but so there's there's an expectation you know and to be able to talk about things and i think this is the this is the the downside this is the downside of indigenous uh, certainly politics but is that um there are a lot of indigenous uh people who pur pur purport to be able to speak about indigenous spirituality um and it's i think that doesn't make them a kind of medicine person. It makes them dangerous uh, in many ways. Not everybody. I think once again, mm -hmm. it comes down, I think it comes down to attitude and, uh, and, and sort of your approach, humility, right? And, um, you know, there's, the, I remember uh, listening to one of the first times I listened to Taylor lecture. Of course, a lot of people disagree with me on this. Um, thinking of some people I know, I hope mm -hmm. they're not listening. 
<laughs> no, I I'm, I want people to listen. So, um, but but t- there's a certain um, with some philosophers and thinkers, and we all have our favorites. There's just a humility about the way they speak and they walk us through their ideas and complex ideas. And I really think that there are human beings whose thoughts are gifts. And it takes a while uh, to, to see that. Back to Simone de Beauvoir for, uh, as an example. So much of that book is angry, right? It's, uh. it, it's written out of anger, but it's also a gift. It's a gift because I think at the end of the day, she's optimistic. Otherwise, I don't think she'd be doing what she's doing. Anyway, my point is that there are people who can talk about these issues in a way that invites right, participation. And uh, But I do think that this term indigenous spirituality is, uh, it's a, it can be a dangerous term. But um, come back to the land acknowledgement, you know, I think for traditionalists, the way, to, the, way the acknowledgement is understood as uh, is almost like a prayer, right? And it's the word that I guess I would use would be ontological. Mm. You know, one of my colleagues in our, as um, Ryan DeCare, who's Mohawk uh, language speaker, he's a beautiful speaker. And he gives our, he gives our blessings in the, to start off our meetings, you know? And, uh, and I, I know from where, the way he's talking, I know, and, and you know, talked earlier about you have to be there. That's definitely the case, right? That there's a there. It's not just performative in a sense that this is our obligation, but you, I can, I really feel that from him. Don't ask me how or ex- explain it or whatever. Mm-hmm. But but there are these contexts that are respectful, and and you feel that sense of respect. Wittgenstein himself was like that. He was, as he says, I'm not a religious man. But uh, I would never make fun of a religious worldview. And I think the one thing that he was able to do was to point at people who were, in a sense, authentic and living according mm. to the way that they understood how to live a good life. And he saw that. And that's why this show say distinction is so important. It is a day. And actually, I, I would maybe take a quick shot at answering my own question, which is like, I, I mean, I think in English it has like a it has baggage because of just like Western, I think, or like, I don't know. Christian metaphysics or something like it has a specific connotation that I think misunderstands or like imagine something like very, I don't know, like, like has a specific ontological feature where I think spirituality, you know, could, can have a broader. And I think actually, so lately I've been listening to um, the audiobook of uh, Sapiens. I don't know if you've heard about this famous book and mm. he starts the book by talking about how like the thing that allowed human beings to, have like an agreement between strangers, right? Was the way, the fact that we could invent fictions that we could all, and, and, you know, he says, you know, we, and we believe in like the government, which doesn't have any material. Um, and, and like the way these fictions basically bring human beings together. And I, and I, and to some extent, like when I was listening to it, I was like, well, that's kind of like spiritual in a way. Like I, you could think about like the way it works to bring human beings, um, to believe in something that allows them to work together, which I think also links to Wittgenstein's idea of forms of life. I mean, I feel like forms of life, the things there's, there's a, there's a way in which it's like a practical embodied agreement, which is in language, but also in the way that the words and the, the, the language in a context of understanding each other, even if we're strangers, because we're in this similar context. Um, 
I'm not sure if I if I if I properly put all those things together, but th- th- that was some thoughts I had. Taking a stab at a difficult question. I have a funny story, and then uh, I'd like to actually make my ask my last question uh, because yeah, and I have one more too, and I have one more too. If that's okay, yeah. I know we're I know it's late for you over there, uh, Professor Turner. Yeah, but no, the, the negative connotation of spirituality that I have not even really negative because I just think this was funny. But uh, I was at a. Um, a party once it was late at night and uh, this girl came in and I was having a chat with her because I was single at the time and she described herself as really into spirituality and she asked if she could read my palm and I was like yeah okay why not you know let's see where the what the future lies and uh, she came up to me and she's like that's okay but uh, first off I need to go smoke this joint uh, because if I smoke this joint then I'll be much more connected to the spirit world and I'll be able to read your palm better so I said to her you know well you know it's not my practices you should do it and uh, she came back and she was all in a daze and she read my palm and she said, you're going to live to be 87. And I'm like, oh, that's nice. And then she's like, uh, there's going to be two great loves in your life. I'm like, well, let's see how that pans out. And she's like, but you have to avoid the first one, though. That was her big thing, because that'll be a dark temptress. Uh, you want to go for the second girl who will be the true one. Um, so, you know, I sometimes when I think spirituality, this is what I associate it with, uh, with. But I certainly think that there's a deeper conception of spirituality at work. Uh, in many different cultural traditions. Uh, and coming from a kind of Catholic Christian perspective, uh, the way that I usually iterate it is using that language. Because uh, the theologian Paul Tillich has a term that I like where he says, everyone has something that they consider to be of what he calls ultimate concern, right? And we invent many metaphorical ways of expressing that. And sometimes we have to understand that people's conception of what's of ultimate concern can become banalized or bastardized, like if you worship money uh, or vice or whatever it happens to be. Uh, but being perplexed by this question and feeling humble, as you put it in front of it, uh, is actually a universal human activity. And indeed, it helps you get a good sense of the priorities that you should have in life. Uh, and uh, that's the attitude I've tried to take uh, in recent years, like you said, Victor, by moving myself away from those kind of cheesy connotations of spirituality. Uh, but the last question I had for you is... When it comes to uh, forming a kind of dialogical relation uh, between European civilization uh, as kind of atomic individualism uh, and the indigenous peoples uh, of Canada, what do you think could theoretically bring us together? What practices uh, do we share uh, that where there's sufficient commonality uh, where people might be able to start recognizing a bit of themselves in the other, uh, which I always see as kind of a necessary step uh, towards... A dialogue, first off, becoming fruitful, but also engaging for the people who are um, dialoguing together. And actually, can I, I want to fold in my question because my question is a similar version of that. So I'll just fold it in and then you can answer them together at the same time. And I think that's, you know, one thing that I, I, I like, I find, um, you know, optimistic in your work is sort of the way that Wittgenstein does lead us to this kind of, well, it's possible to, to understand each other. And, I, and, you know, in contrast to, and obviously as someone who doesn't know uh, indigenous political theory very well, but I'm familiar enough, and I think that there's a trend, and this isn't even necessarily an in indigenous politics only, but also even in like some tradition, like critical theory traditions, um, where there's more of an emphasis on radical alterity, right? That like we can't understand each other, right? And I think maybe you and I even talked or mentioned Glenn, Glenn Coltard, right? Like that, that, that sometimes it seems like there's the more, um, there's a pessimism and I earlier when Matt was talking about the, the conservative um, thinkers as being like kind of giving up, like, why can't we just let go that sometimes it seems like on the other side, there's also like a spirit of giving up for, but for different reasons, because we have so little in common that like we should give up for that. So that I think that that's like my last sort of question is your thoughts about that. And 
just in general, like being optimistic or being pessimistic in the face of very difficult political problems and uh, struggles for and how Wittgenstein, I guess. I don't know if you can put that all into one question, but sorry. Well, I think humor. Let's uh, let's start right there. I think uh, Nishinaabe people in particular, we're funny people, <laughs> you know, and uh, I remember uh, Mike Mitchell, who's a pretty tough guy, uh, Mohawk guy. I think he's Mohawk. I probably pound me out if you're getting that wrong. I'm sorry if I'm, if I'm wrong. <laughs> Tough guy, man, lacrosse player, and, you know, and um, chief, war chief, you know, and talking about some of these issues can, and they're hard. They're hard to talk about when you're talking about colonialism and the government and this happened and this happened and so on. And uh, I remember at the end, he said, uh, he got up and he told a joke. I wish I could remember the joke. But he just he got up and said, you know what? We gotta laugh, people. And he told this joke, and it was kind of a dirty joke. And and <laughs> everybody, everybody laughed. So I think I think humor is important because in a way it kind of it it shows that we're all in the same boat in some way, right? That we yeah. that we're trying to make we're trying to figure things out, you know, and um and so I think humor is is um is very important but i i think at a more uh philosophical level um i think the my example of the clerkships is mm. uh, is is uh is a way a good way it's a, it's a sort of practical on the ground um bringing people together uh, another way is in teaching um we our pedagogy needs to change you know and uh, I think, um, for example, we should, and, and the way we raise our children um, needs to change mm-hmm. in terms of uh, they're a lot smarter than we think they are. And for uh, and the way I think the hook between certainly indigenous ways of knowing and Western European ways of knowing is in our relationships to land and and an environmental ethos that indigenous peoples bring both to academia and in, into into mainstream canadian society and children respond to that and they're and they want they 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 want to be told the truth and uh, and i think that indigenous medicine people in particular um are able to talk the truth to power, so to speak, in ways that doesn't make people uneasy. I mean, I used to joke, you know, my class at Dartmouth with, uh, you know, privileged sort of students and say, uh, my first thing I said once was, uh, your grandfathers uh, killed my grandfathers. Uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about that, this, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> so there's just, open a class cold with that, eh? That's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some folder book and go. Well, I'm all done here, um, but but I think um, I think there's something about the way that we relate to the to the world, right? And in in, in call it environmental ethos, indigenous knowledge. There's if there's one thing I'm convinced about is that sort of there that traditional relationships to land are about attitude, but they're also about knowledge, things that they know that are astonishing, you know, that we think, uh, so this divide between science, scientific thinking, and, 
indigenous thinking is a false sort of dichotomy, I think. Um, and indigenous, I think by listening to indigenous peoples, and I think what we're, dis what we're uh, going through now, I think is there are indigenous intellectuals who are aware of this problem of translation and are aware of how we speak about our ways of thinking is really important. You know, um, and there are people like Alan Corbier, who's who's a Nishnabe historian at uh, York University, raised on this language and in the traditions and trusted by his community. This guy's a professor at you know in history. Um, so you do have, uh, you know, I talked about word warriors in my book, but now I'm talking. Now I'm thinking more about medicine people. These people are bringing words that heal. Words that heal all of us, and and I think there's a sense of urgency about us being to that we need to listen to these people, and I think we can facilitate that. Uh, that's that it's it's we have our people, our wise people, and these wise people matter at this time in history, and there are even prophecies for that in the Anishinaabe culture about the importance of these people. So I think I think it's praxis, right? It's about practice. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good way to uh, to nurture that ongoing dialogue and to have a genuine exchange in ways of thinking and that affects our own ways of thinking. That's great. Um, yeah, I really like that sentiment. I mean, the, the, the hope and continued dialogue. And I also love the point you made about humor, because I think one of the frustrations I have with just, you know, these days, radical politics in general, you know, not just on the indigenous issue is I feel like there's quite a bit of solemnity and, 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 you know, not much, uh, not much humor. I feel. Oh, I always say it right. You know, um, I think of myself uh, as like a, a radical progressive, right. And liberal socialist and all that stuff. And the number one reason a lot of my students don't like to get involved in these issues. And I talk about them is they're like, yeah, but all you people are such a drag, you know what I mean? I'm going to go, it's kind of like you were saying about Adorno before we get in this and, you know, I'm not going to be able to watch, you know, my TV shows without feeling bad about myself and humor is really important antidote to that. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Wittgenstein once said, I, and I said this at a, it was a, a conference for a telly, uh, and in Montreal, and um, they had all of his people were close to him. It was 30, 40 people there. And, um, you know, he said, uh, I so started my talk and I said, well, um, Wittgenstein once said that I can imagine a work of philosophy that cons consisting entirely of jokes. <laughs> you know? And then it, uh, settle in, you know, um, but then that's it. I couldn't pull it off. But I'd, I'd love to be able to do that sometime. Yeah, that would be <laughs> that would be great. But on that note, uh, Professor Turner, thanks so much for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. If you're curious about his work, um, look out for his book. This is not a peace pipe towards a critical indigenous philosophy and uh, watch out for the Rutledge Handbook of Critical Indigenous Studies, which will feature the paper that we kind of talked about. Uh, but um, in any case, I'm not sure when that's expected to come out, um, Professor Turner. About soon, yeah. Soon. OK, awesome. So, yeah. Watch out for that, listeners, and uh, thanks. Good. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for having me.